Welcome to the Fast God Stuff Podcast, where we make biblical theology simple, practical, and fun so that we can love God and others more. I'm Conrad, and hey, Jesse, what, what do you think my favorite cereal is? I think your favorite cereal is Count Chocula. Oh, that's a good one. Close. What do you think my favorite cereal is? Um, Fiber One brand... Fiber One brand cereal. Uh, We're just two guys trying to follow Jesus and hanging out in the studio with our Bibles and guitars. We take just 30 minutes to chat about a theological topic and remove our mind. Remove? (laughs) Remove. Remove our minds. (laughs) Renew our minds with the good things of Christ. It's fast, God's stuff. So what are we talking about today, Conrad? Well, Jesse, today on this episode, we are talking about um, top myths about Christianity. No, what, are you what sure is it? we're not talking about the worst opening we've ever done? <laughs> but we're keeping it anyway. <laughs> Two, three, four, top myths about Christianity. You're it all top myths about Christianity. You're It's been a while, apparently. Sorry. So there's a lot of misunderstandings out there about Christians and Christianity. And that leads to all kinds of confusion and ultimately all kinds of unnecessary hardships. So today we're going to go over the top myths of Christianity so that we can clear out some of the confusion so that we can get to the bottom of what Christianity believes so that we could be the people that God actually wants us to be. Let's do it. The first myth that people have about Christians or Christianity is Christians are good people. Oh, good one. Uh, You like that one? See what I did there? Yeah. (laughs) Does that mean I'm good? (laughs) Okay. So, So I picked this one because it's a myth that Christians tend to have about their own selves. And what's at stake here is our very own daily relationship with God and our relationship with others. Okay, so to know if we're good or not, we first have to define what good is. So whenever anyone is trying to figure out if they're good at something, what they're typically doing is they're comparing themselves to some type of standard, some type of best. Right. If you're playing basketball and you beat a four-year-old at basketball, (laughs) I've done it before. They are terrible. (laughs) So does beating a four-year-old make me a good basketball player? I mean, no, obviously, like we would say the standard is somebody like Michael Jordan, who's an epic basketball player, a legend in this game and the sport. Exactly. So if I say I'm better than a four-year-old, that means that there is some spectrum of bad, better, and best. So if there is a better, that means that there is a best. And my goodness at something is in relation to whatever that best is, whatever that standard is. And in the case of basketball, that, of course, would be Michael Jordan. So my goodness at something is measured only by my relationship to the standard, to the best. So if I go and beat 100 more four-year-olds, that doesn't somehow make me 100 times better at basketball, making me closer to Michael Jordan in some way. Right. So in determining if we're good at something, comparing ourselves to anything other than the standard, other than the best, only gives us a false sense of our own goodness. Okay, so when it comes to morality, who is the standard of goodness? That's a great question. I mean, obviously the Bible teaches us 
that God is that standard. Actually, the Bible calls God perfect. Mm-hmm. And so he really does become the standard for all of us, whether or not we want to accept it, just like you said. Exactly. So and not yeah. only do we learn from God what it means to have this perfection, this what it means to be good, but when he sent his son, Jesus, who became flesh and lived among us, Jesus himself modeled in being human everything. He was the standard for what it meant to actually be a good human. He was, the, in fact, the only good human being. Right. So when we say good, we are actually saying he sets the standard of what good is. Right. And what good is, is sinlessness. And that's actually creates an impossible standard. So using the basketball example, let's say Christ was the standard of basketball. And so it would be like if Christ never missed a shot, he never lost a game, right. he prevented the other team from scoring at all, won every single championship all by himself. So even the best basketball players we know of would be absolute terrible relative to his goodness, to his perfection. And another way to put it is like this. Okay, so let's say there's this room and Christ is in this room, and then we have to line ourselves up from worst to best morally. So like the most evil people would be on one side of the room furthest from Christ and less evil a little bit closer towards Christ and the better people even closer. But here's the thing. We have to space ourselves out in relationship to Christ's goodness. So let's say Christ is on one side of the room against the wall. And on the opposite wall, we would have the most evil people in the world ever, like Joseph Stalin or Mark Zuckerberg or (laughs) Bill Belichick or or Voldemort. (laughs) He who must not be named. So remember, we have to place ourselves in the room geographically relative to Christ's perfection and goodness. So where would we be forced to place ourselves? Uh, this is a really good question. And this is part of what people struggle with in this myth of Christians being somehow good, because the tendency is to say, well, I'm not as bad as those guys, right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm no Voldemort, like I've never killed a wizard before. So therefore I must be like somewhere in the middle, but the Bible tells us that's not true at all. That actually this is way more binary than we think that Paul says it this way, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is to say, all do not meet up to his expectations. And so we all actually fall on the other end of that spectrum. Yeah. So if we were thinking of this room geographically, we would, we would be sitting on Voldemort's lap. <laughs> you would be, you would be. <laughs> super I, uncomfortable, but accurate. You and your 501 brand suit. <laughs> like just, He's feeding me. <laughs> Jesse, open up. <laughs> but you're absolutely right. Yeah, and if I really look at myself, really look at myself and goodness or lack of goodness, sin is always right there with me because all it takes to come out in a steady stream is simply just to get in my car and interact with any other driver. People not going when the light turns green, people who are driving in the passing lane, people who are terrible parkers. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just when I drive, not to mention when I'm actually interacting with like annoying people. And that's the center cut of this myth though, isn't it? It's the fact that what we're saying, some people might look at that and say, well, that's not so bad, but that's the point is that God's standard is so high that he is actually and legitimately perfect. 
that the suitable response in that situation would be to always be loving, always be patient, exactly, always yeah. be kind. And so any deviation from that is actually a complete and utter failure of the whole thing. Right. And what we find is that we end up back on Voldemort's lap, especially if we try to do it ourselves. If we just keep saying, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try to be nicer. I'm going to try to be kinder. That all those things inevitably fail without God himself, who is the only one who can help us to achieve the standard that he actually requires. Right. So even though our goodness is only in relation to the best, to the standard, you'll hear all the time people lowering the standard that they compare themselves to. Like, I mean, how often do you hear things like, well, no one's perfect or I'm only human or at least I was honest about it. So phrases like this show us that we're trying to lower the standard. And worse yet, sometimes we place ourselves as a standard when we say stuff like, well, at least I'm not as bad as that guy. Right. And really, Christians should know better than thinking that we're good people, because part of being saved is admitting to God that I am a sinner. We repent of our sins. But for some reason, Christians believe that just because we're saved from the punishment of sin, that somehow we are now good people. But it is Christ's goodness that ends up paying our debt from sin, not our own goodness. Right. And I think this is where some of the confusion comes in. Just because we are declared innocent before God through Christ doesn't make us good people now. So we need to make the distinction between three different categories of our our Christian walk. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. So these are like really important theological terms. And they sound like they're like super heady. Like you can drop these at parties at your theological dinner parties (laughs) and sound like a rock star. (laughs) But they're actually really simple concepts. It's just language that means two things. Justification is the sense in which we have a forensic cleansing. So if you're in a court of law, justification is in a sense being said, declared, you are no longer guilty. Mm -hmm. And that is an amazing thing. But sanctification is something a little bit different. That is the process of becoming more like Jesus in all of our behavior. So even though we've been declared that we're no longer guilty of our sin, the process of becoming more and more like Jesus in our behavior to love God and to love others is a process that lasts all of our lives and will never be complete, actually, until we go to heaven to be with Jesus and we are glorified. That's the completion of our sanctification. Right. So that means one day when you die— God's ultimate plan for you to make you like Christ will be completed for all eternity. But until then, we're like a cake still being baked. We are being made more like Christ every day in our daily lives. So that means we are to love God and love others as Christ does more and more each day. But here's the thing with sanctification. You would think that the closer you get to Christ— the less sin you see in your life. However, interestingly, it's actually the exact opposite. Yes. So think of it this way. God is like a light. And when you're really far from the light, the more you are in darkness. And the more you are in darkness, you can only see like large stains on yourself. Like you can only see like salsa if it's all of your shirt or guacamole on your head or poop on your shoes. But the closer you get to the light, the more stains you actually see, the the smaller ones, like the dirt under your fingernails, like stuff underneath your scalp or like stuff in your nose. And when you get even closer, God's light shines right through you like an x-ray or like an MRI machine. And you actually see stuff that no one else can see, like tumors or cancer or like fractures in your bone. But here's the thing. Don't let that discourage you. 
because the more sin you start to uncover, the more of God's grace you start to uncover and are able to appreciate him for. Okay, so on to some practical stuff. Let's start off with kids. So what we're not saying is don't go around telling your kids, you're not good at all. (laughs) (laughs) You are a miserable, wretched sinner. (laughs) You sinner. No, so no, what we're saying is to teach them that goodness is being like Christ. So when you say you're being good, you're really saying you're being more Christ-like. And Christ was loving, he was obedient, he ate his vegetables and he cleaned his room. So what you're teaching them is that both you and your kids have the standard that you're all working towards. And so their obedience becomes less about you and them in their minds and more about them becoming more like Christ. And the second practical thing is... Don't be judgy. (laughs) (laughs) Just stop it. Because remember, compared to Christ, we're all in the same boat. We just have different sins. And thinking that we're better than others makes us judgy and self-righteous and prideful. But knowing that we're all in the same boat, this should lead us to have compassion for one another. I want to be more like Christ. I want them to be more like Christ. So turn your judginess into grace and into patience and into love. Right on. And practical thing number three, once you start judging people so much, then you could turn that spotlight onto yourself and spot your own sin and work on that. So just think of which fruit of the Spirit you're missing in your life. Which areas of Christ-likeness are you missing? And the fruit of the Spirit are things like love, joy, peace, patience, and Galatians 5. So just look into your own life and see what are the situations where you're lacking patience or love or things like that, and then try to work on those things every day. So let's say you flip out every single time your kid leaves a mess. And so one, ask for wisdom on how to lessen that frequency of that trigger itself. And I don't mean like getting rid of the kid. (laughs) I mean like coming up with positive reinforcements when they do clean up. And two, learn which fruit of the spirit you're lacking. Maybe it's patience or self-control. And then start to work on those things. Right. So here's the 15-second Fast Gut Stuff summary. Christians are not good people. Christians are sinners saved by the grace of God through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Christ is good. Christ is goodness itself. And that is the direction we point ourselves, our spouse, our kids, and everyone else to walk towards. Because the more we become more like him, the more we can do what Christ ultimately does, which is loving God and loving others. And that's it. <laughs> so Jesse, what myth would you like to bust? So another myth about Christianity is that Christianity is a list of do's and don'ts. Ooh. Sometimes people from the outside looking into Christianity say things like, well, isn't Christianity just a thing, a giant list of stuff you're not supposed to do, and then you have to do these things. So, for instance, Christians, they don't swear. Maybe they shouldn't play cards. They shouldn't watch particular kinds of movies. They certainly don't listen to rock and roll or punk rock music. No. And then, on the other hand, isn't it just a bunch of stuff they have to do? They have to go to church. They have to read their Bibles. They have to be nice to everybody else. So, sometimes it seems like Christianity is just this list of stuff that we have to keep track of. Some things we're supposed to do, and other things we're not supposed to do. Right. So, well, why does this matter? So, the problem with this perspective is it gets the idea of Christianity all flipped upside down and turned inside out, because that myth presumes that the way that you establish whether or not you're a Christian is by either doing something or not doing something as Mm -hmm. if it's all about the activity, some action you either take or don't take. But really being a Christian is more about identity. 
Mm-hmm. It's about being a child of God. It's about being saved by God and redeemed by God and now living a life for God. And it's not about some kind of weird esoteric list of activities that you either do or don't do. Right. And when we get into that mindset we, that we have to somehow earn God's love, uh, this rule following it becomes a currency that we use to buy God's love. Right. And you might have heard this term thrown around a lot, but this mindset is called legalism. And when you read the Gospels, uh, in the Bible, Christ confronts the legalists a lot, these do's and don't people, these people who try to obey the rules without understanding the spirit behind the rules. Yeah, so the Pharisees are basically these dudes in Jewish culture, along with a group called the scribes, who are kind of like the legal experts on religion. Mm-hmm. And their job was to undertake to protect the Jewish culture and to protect the Jewish religion. And so they were so zealous to do this that not only did they try to honor what was written in the Bible, but then they created all these extra biblical rules so as to make sure that people didn't come close to violating the Bible. So it'd be like this. It'd be like, let's say God didn't do this, but let's say that God commanded that people shouldn't sit in red chairs, no sitting in red chairs, Mm -hmm. illegal. And so the Pharisees came along and said, you know what? That is a really good rule. We want to honor God. We don't want anybody to sit in red chairs. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to say you have to keep five feet away from all red chairs. Actually, you know what? That's not even good enough. You can't look at red chairs at all. You know what? You can't even come near red chairs. If if you go near a person who looked at a red chair in the last 20 minutes, you can't do that as well. And so, they created all these laws. So, all of a sudden, religion got blown up into this list of things that you should and shouldn't do. Right. And what's missing is, why do these rules exist in the first place? And legalism doesn't just happen in Christianity. It happens in society as well. Right. So, like, during the COVID pandemic, we had these government rules to wear a mask and to stay six feet apart. So, that was the letter of the law. The spirit of the law was really to keep people safe. But following the rules exactly without understanding the reason behind it, it could put you in ridiculous situations. Okay, so let's pretend. Let's say you were driving and you were going around a turn and you lost control. Okay. And before you fell over the cliff, you jumped out and you were hanging over the edge. So in these examples, why am I always like near death (laughs) in every situation? Because it's more dramatic. (laughs) We need to give the listeners what they want. Okay, so so everybody wants this apparently. Okay, so I'm hanging by a root off a cliff. I'm just barely hanging on to my life. And then so I'm coming with do-do-do-do-do. Oh, Jesse, what are you doing over there? I'm hanging off a cliff because I jumped out of my car <laughs> and I'm th- this route is about to give way. Will you help me? Uh, okay, sure. But but wait, we're still in the middle of the COVID pandemic and I, I can't help but notice you're not wearing a mask. Okay, so I could just reach down a couple feet and grab you. But oh, yeah, we have to social distance. We have to say six feet apart. So, oh, but wait, I have a rope. Oh, it's only five feet long. D- throw me the rope. <laughs> I can't. Social <laughs> distancing. <laughs> okay, so you all get it. So like in the case of the 2020 pandemic COVID rules, the ultimate reason why we had the laws wasn't to actually prevent the spread of COVID. No, because COVID is only bad because it kills people and killing people is actually the thing that we're trying to prevent. So the spirit of the law is human life is sacred. And we have a thousand different laws, including the COVID laws, protecting human life, like don't murder or speed limit laws or pollution regulation or safety locks. So all these laws have one spirit, and that spirit is to protect human life. So the Bible and all of its thousands of rules also have a similar spirit, one command to bring it all together. 
Okay, so well, what is this ultimate command? What command brings all the commands in the Bible into one spirit? So in Matthew 22, Jesus says that all the laws and the rules that God has laid out for us, the spirit of the law comes down to this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Get this. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And that's actually where we get the motto of our podcast. Love God, love others, that's it. So when we love God and others, we're not obeying all these rules because we have to, but because we want to. Because obedience to God's rules are an expression of the spirit of love. The rules actually help us to live out how to love God and others more, rather than to prevent us from just doing certain things. Right. And Jesus actually himself addresses with the Pharisees and the scribes this problem by explaining that religion is not about some kind of rule following, but it's about a relationship with God. It's understanding the heart of God behind all the commands he's given us, and that that reflects outwardly in demonstrative acts rather than the other way around by somehow doing something on the outside and that's somehow saving us on the inside. Right. This is what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. He has some really harsh words for these dudes who are getting it wrong. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice um, as much a child of hell as you are. Man. Wow. Boom. That's, yeah, that's like total mic drop because what Jesus is essentially saying here is you mixed up what this is all about. And when you burden people with these unnecessary laws, when you make this idea of Christianity about some kind of rule following in and of itself, that what you're actually doing is you are setting people up to fail because you are misunderstanding what it means to trust in God for your salvation. Right. So adding these additional bubbles around sin, when you add up all these bubbles, what you've actually done is you've created a giant bubble around yourself and maybe your family. So, And this is what most people call the Christian bubble. Right on. Now, there are two massive things wrong with this methodology beyond what we've already spoken about. So the first thing is separating ourselves from temptation doesn't actually address the problem because sin doesn't originate with the temptation. Sin originates in our hearts. Right. Our hearts are the problem, not the temptation. So if we don't address our hearts, we're going to sin just as much in the Christian bubble as outside of it, but we're just going to be sinning in different ways. Right on. And then the next thing is this Christian bubble is unsustainable. Eventually, you or your kids have to go to school or college or work or just to witness or do anything like that or even just go up to their rooms on their phones in your own house. So we don't pretend we can keep ourselves or our kids from temptation. We teach them how to deal with temptation. We teach them the biblical sexual ethic before their friends, school, or computers do. And how often are kids unprepared for atheistic arguments when they go off to college and then are eventually led astray? It's because our kids haven't heard these arguments before, and they're only hearing one side of it, so these arguments seem new and fresh. But if you had prepared them, like introduced these arguments to them before, and and have taught them why these arguments fail— Instead of being led astray, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I know about that one. Not only are they wrong about that, but actually that would lead them to believe this other unsustainable philosophy that they hold. 
So using a sports analogy, you can't expect to win a game when you're clueless about how your opponent works. Because our three opponents, which are the flesh, Satan, and the world, all have their ways of tempting us to sin. And what is sin? Sin isn't conforming to the character of Christ. And what Christ does is he loves God and others. So sin prevents us from loving, from living this better life. Right on, because the implication of this myth is that if Christianity is really about a giant list of things you can and cannot do, then the Christian life is super restrictive and it's just awful because mm-hmm. there's all the things you would rather do, but you can't because they're not on the list. Right. And so not only did Jesus come to shut down that kind of lifeless obligatory religion, but he also came to give abundant life. In yeah. fact, he says in John, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Right. And people think that Christianity is like some giant buzzkill, that (laughs) God doesn't want us to have any fun. But actually, it's the exact opposite. God wants us to be happy. He wants us to have the most fun, the most joy. And that all comes from love. Like, What's better than love? What's better than being loved and giving loved? And that's exactly how God made us. He knows what makes us happy, and that's to be in his loving family. God's love will make us happy. Receiving God's love and loving God back and loving others as Christ does. Right on. But somehow we think we know our souls better, that we think that somehow we can primarily feel, find soul-satisfying happiness through a romantic relationship or money or fame or power or career or some type of self-actualization. But those things end up just being like a trap Right on. Not only does Jesus bring us joy, give us happiness, but he does something else that really is the last thing that busts this myth wide open. And that is Jesus comes to set people free. Right. And that's exactly what Jesus does. The Bible explains that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the only free person the Bible tells us is the one who is in Jesus Because it's Jesus who gives us victory over sin and victory over death. So all those bad habits we wish we could break, all the things that we set up for ourselves as standards that we know we can't even comply with, we can't fulfill, it's the free person is the only one who is on the side of Jesus, who through the power of the Holy Spirit is able to work towards sanctification. That's the person that's only actually free from sin and free to actually behave the way that God attended. Exactly, because when people talk about freedom, what they're really thinking of is, I want to be free to do what I want to do. Right. But the Bible calls that, actually calls that a type of slavery, a slavery to yourself, a slavery to sin. And this is not the soul-satisfying joy and happiness that comes from the love found in the family of God. And Christ frees us from this bondage of the self, from bondage of trying out a bunch of different things to try to figure out what makes me happy, trying out a bunch of different people, trying out a bunch of different careers. He frees us into a life of soul-satisfying Christ-like love. He frees us from searching for love and into discovering and enjoying his love. Right. So, Jesse, what would you say to the person who feels like they're just not good enough and that they need to earn God's love? We should go back to the scriptures and remember that God gave his son for us, that that precious gift secured everything. And so because that was the highest amount that could have been paid, there's actually nothing that you and I can do to earn God's love any more or any less. So we got to look to the cross and remember that Jesus took care of everything for us. 
Right. It doesn't mean, of course, that we have some kind of license to sin. What it means is that when we truly reflect and appreciate God's gift of Jesus to us in his death and resurrection, then it means that we no longer do things for God out of some kind of real obligation, but it's because we love him. We have a relationship with him and we want to please him. Excellent. Here's the 15 second fast God stuff summary. One of the absolute top myths about Christianity is that it's a religion of do's and don'ts. We know this because Jesus Christ, for whom Christianity is named, actually came to shut down lifeless obligatory religion. He came to give abundant life, and he came to set people free from following empty rules. Exactly. So, Jesse... We went over two myths today that we actually came up independently from each other, and they actually seem to have a common theme, uh, had to do with our goodness and our attempts at goodness. Are there any thoughts that you think pulls these together? I think at the center of both of these myths is this idea that somehow humankind needs to ascend some giant mountain to get close to God, that they have to climb up, they have to work really hard, they have to do certain things, and somehow this will draw God's attention and his good grace towards us. But Jesus busts both of those because in his example, in his coming to this earth and God giving him as a sacrifice for us, he shows that we don't need to do any of those things. Actually, God condescends or comes down to meet with us as opposed to us trying to rise and meet with him. And in doing that, he beats down this idea of rule following. He gets rid of lifeless religion and he replaces it with abundant life and relationship with God that naturally results in a desire to love God and love others. Amen. That's all the time that we have for today. Tell a friend about this episode and remember to subscribe to the Fast God Stuff podcast. Fast God Stuff is a proud member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. And please check out fastgodstuff.com for all kinds of content that will help you share a bowl of Fiber One with Voldemort. (laughs) (laughs) Well, until next time, love God, love others, that's That's it. it!